welcome to another episode of the Feminist Survival Project. I'm Emily Nagoski. And I'm Amelia Nagoski. This is a podcast for feminists who feel overwhelmed and exhausted by everything they have to do and still worry that they're not doing enough. It is Black History Month here in the U.S., so we're going to spend this episode hopefully making sure nobody who's listening here is a white feminist. Even though, even though we're a couple white of white and people feminists. who are feminists, really, this episode is for other white people, people like us. Yeah. Um, we're not going to be saying anything that people of color don't already know. Mm-hmm. And a caveat before we start, we identify as white, white ladies, ladies who, who try. 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 I don't use the label of allies. I in no way identify as an anti-racist activist or educator. Or expert. We are not expert. No. This is a podcast by inexpert white ladies for inexpert white ladies. Yeah. About people of color, which is the first thing we're doing wrong here. Yeah, we, we are. This. We're, we're going to do it anyway. Yeah, we're making a podcast about race that centers our experience as white people. Yeah. That's we shouldn't be doing that. We should be will probably and should be criticized Rightfully so for that. Yeah. Um, but our, there's a limit to what our job is here. Right. We're here to help all feminists survive 2020, and one of the things that we are in a position to do is to help make a life a little easier for feminists of color by helping other white women not be white feminists. So we have access to an audience of white women that perhaps women of color don't have, but we can hopefully help some of our white women in the audience find some of those women of color who they can follow on social media and learn more about their perspective. So let's compensate for our first mistake, which is that we're even doing this episode by beginning with a list of women of color whose work has really helped us. Yeah, by all means, just go listen to them now and yeah. then stop and, listening and, to this. Yeah, and that'd just, be totally fine. You can do that'd that. That'd be great. So the first thing we want to talk about is the Me and White Supremacy Workbook by Layla Saad. We'll put a link in the show notes. This book is coming out right at the beginning of February. It started as a month-long Instagram challenge by Layla Saad with the hashtag Me and White Supremacy asking white people to think really critically about their own past experiences, the subconscious thoughts that just barely bubble up to dig deep. When I went through the white supremacy workbook, um, like I'm somebody who's Tries. done a bunch of work. I've had formal training, mm-hmm. anti-racist education. I participated in work groups. Like yeah. I've done a bunch of stuff. Seminar. And dude, it dug up some dark stuff for me. It renewed my commitment to trying and it humbled me in a really important way. So uh, the Me and White Supremacy Workbook, stop listening to this podcast. Just, Just go, go do that. that. Yeah. That would be fine. Yep. If you're still listening, there's a, we really want you to follow the Nap Bishop. Yeah. On We've talked about this account several Instagram. times. Instagram. On Instagram. We've talked about it several times. It's the most important thing. Trisha Hersey's work is dedicated to creating sacred spaces of rest for especially Black people in America as commentary on an action against the generations of labor stolen from Black bodies in America. It is so important. Yeah. I was already advocating for rest when I saw her speak the first time, and (laughs) this is how white I am. I hadn't put it together (laughs) (laughs) that the narrative against rest 
is different and more intense for people of color because of the ways that the labor of their bodies was the legal property Property. of someone else. So her connection of white supremacy and capitalism with the anti-rest narrative was grind culture so essential Um, and I really genuinely need you all to go and follow her yeah your life will be better and your understanding of the world will be better another book that was transformative for me just recently Tracy McMillan Cottom's book Thick Uh, there's a chapter titled Know Your Whites which was first of all you should read that book Uh, but it made me think about what kind of white am I Mm. am I a white who pulls attention to herself mm-hmm. and hoards opportunities mm-hmm. when attention and opportunities should be spread among my colleagues who aren't white but don't get asked to do things I get asked to do because I'm white and there are people who ask me to do things are afraid of people of color. Mm-hmm. I sure try not to be, but here I am making a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so the title of that book is Thick? Thick, T-H-I-C-K. Yeah. Yes. And it's, it's amazing. Yeah. We quote... Brittany Cooper's Eloquent Eloquent Rage Rage. at the end of our own book. That's another amazing book. Yeah, really powerful and important. And if nothing else, it enlightened me as to the meaning of Michelle Obama's hair Mm -hmm. on the inauguration day of uh, Donald Trump. But that was like the least that it did. It's really important. And uh, the last person of color whose work I want to talk about, honestly, the last black, these are all black women we're talking about. Sonia Renee Taylor's book, The Body is Not an Apology, Mm -hmm. is a must read for every human on the face of the the earth. But her Instagram feed is a particularly abundant source because she uses the Instagram TV feature to do these like off the cuff, let me just say a thing here real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them was responding to a New York Times op-ed that celebrated calling in as opposed to calling out. Mm-hmm. And her response was to say, so mm-hmm. cool New York Times for catching up on what was like cutting edge in social justice work five or 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Welcome. Welcome, New York Times. But how about we get past both calling out And Uh calling in. Calling Uh out is when you're judgmentally saying, you did this thing wrong. You did a thing wrong. You got to do it different. Calling in is saying, you did a thing wrong. I'm here to help you do better, which requires a whole lot of labor from the person who's doing the calling in. And she says... Why would anyone do that? It's a huge investment. And What if we also have the opportunity to call on? Calling on a person you fucked up. I'm calling on you to do what it takes to do better in the future. It doesn't require labor on the part of the person who's calling on. And it doesn't have the like, I'm calling you out, judgmental, you did it wrong. It's not inviting a dog pile. And we are going to talk about what that reaction is like when someone gets called out or called on or when someone tells us we are something that we did not believe that we are. We're going to talk about how to deal with that. Another really important thing that Sonia Renee Taylor talked about on her Instagram is how white trauma becomes white violence. Mm, Exactly. So healing from our own personal trauma is anti-racist work. Yes. If you're a white lady. Back in our trauma episode, uh, Amelia's song (laughs) said, it's incredibly valuable and important that you're taming that lion in your wardrobe. Wow, you remember the tune. I heard it a few times. That's true. (laughs) Well, this is an example of that. Why healing your trauma is not just you healing you. It's you taming the lion. It's you helping to change the world. So you don't end up eating the people around you. Yeah. Not to enact your pain on others. We'll put links to those videos in the show notes. Okay. So those are just some of the people whose work has been helpful for us 
honestly stop listening to this podcast and just go listen to them because they're amazing. Yeah. If you want to hear three things that we do as white ladies who try and things we don't do as white ladies who try, here we go. Our main function, if there's anything valuable in this, is to show the ways that we continue to try, try. even though we are flawed, flawed. and imperfect, Just and we'll continue to fuck up on a pretty regular basis yeah. and continue to get better and do better every time. Yeah. Okay. So first, do you want to go? Sure. Um, the most important thing we've learned, like we've been dragging ourselves out of the mire of white supremacy our whole lives. Yeah. We were just born into it, and it's not our fault that we were born into it. It's not our fault that we were brainwashed. It is just our responsibility to drag ourselves out of it. And so our central task is to do the personal, emotional work of excavating white supremacy from our brains. Uh, so yeah, it matters that we speak up as white people when other people, white people, say or do something racist. Yes. It matters that we stand aside and create space for people of color to be centered. Yes, it matters that we apologize. We don't make excuses. We don't offer rationalizations. We just apologize when we fuck up and we do what we can to make amends. But all those things and all the other things we do, what really matters is that we dig deep to the roots of white supremacist ideology planted in our brains and bodies before we were even born. We need to uproot it. So that's the first thing we do is we do that big, emotional, ugly, difficult work. Insert me and white supremacy workbook here. Yeah. Things we don't do. <sighs> we don't use the language of social justice work if it feels alienating. We don't talk about checking privilege or checking ourselves, usually because the idea of checking doesn't feel related to our everyday way of being. And for me, I feel like the anti-racist work is so much about self-reflection and stuff I do every day and checking feels like special and extraordinary, just the nature of the language and the way it gets used. It's not a part of my everyday being alive on earth in the 20th century. So um, my way of thinking about it is just that I, I notice my shit yeah. in the same way I notice like that there's dog hair accumulating in the corner of that room. Yeah. That's just like, I just got to notice that and do something about it. Yeah, that's the kind of work that conductors do all the time of monitoring our reactions to situations and noticing how an emotion in a room is elevating or triggering an emotion from us. And should we be acting on that? Or is that maybe some kind of bullshit that we're actually engaging <laughs> in? Instead, just understanding that it happens in a larger context and that it could be extremely harmful to the people of color around us and adding that into our awareness of ourselves and our interactions with the universe. It's funny, being trained as a counselor is the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The second important thing that we do do after doing that personal emotional excavation is we do something. And something is anything that is not nothing. Maybe the most obvious something that a white person can do is to notice when another white person is being a mess <laughs> and like, go get that person. Go get them. Just herd them Just, back in. like the... clean up an aisle five. Mm -hmm. it, if you see a white person like demanding, educate me type labor comments yeah. in the person of color's Instagram post. Yeah. You have the privilege to like point out to them that that's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, you can give them information about where to find what they're looking for. Yeah. But no person of color owes any white person free education, even if that person is an anti-racist educator on the internet. Mm-hmm. Like, they, it's still work that they should not have to do. We yes. should be doing it for each other. 
So in the book, we write about this in the Mad Woman chapter. Yes. The Mad Woman is the like crazy making feeling that you get when there is a big gap between who you truly are and who the world expects you to be. When the world says you're being racist right now, that thing you said is, you know, kind of racist. The mad woman flares up because it's ter- it's a bad thing to it's be It's her job racist. to manage the gap. Yeah. And you've just pointed out there's a gap. So you're going to trigger that mad woman. She's going to be like, and here's my time to shine. And she's only got two choices. The problem is either the person who says what you just did was racist. Mm-hmm. Or the problem is you, you for being racist. And in either. Okay. So suppose your mad woman flares. Somebody says, so that thing you just said. That that was not okay. That was that was some racism right there. And your mad woman goes, "No, it wasn't." And it like flares up at that person of color and says that that person's being oversensitive and is being the racist for calling me racist. So obviously not okay, right? Or your mad woman turns toward you with like, "You did this racist thing," and you start you turn into this mode of self-flagellation and like, "I'm so sorry. I have so many feelings. I'm swamped and overcome, and you have to help me, person of color, with all my white feelings are hurt." <laughs> yeah. Also not okay. Your feelings are not other people's responsibility. Yeah. And this is where the conversation about white tears comes in. That's what white tears are. It's the mad woman. Yes. And it's complicated. I have feelings about this is one of the things, ways that I fall short as a white lady who tries is that I know we live in a world that dismisses women's uncomfortable feelings and to suggest that a woman is crying in order to manipulate and control a situation right. is another way to dismiss hey, a woman's feelings. That's a symptom of systemic sexism. The dismissal right. of women's emotions. But then again, some white women are doing that. That, yeah. Because their feelings are more important than the feelings of the person of color. And because of the nature of white supremacy in the context of misogyny, sometimes we've been taught that the only way for us to have any control of a situation is to cry. And furthermore, the people of color around us have been taught to perceive our tears as a sign that something really bad is happening and it's their job to fix it or else. Yeah. So we're not, you're not wrong when that's your response. No, it's, it's complicated. But it's complicated. What matters is what you do with it. Yeah. Which is to be like, it's really uncomfortable for me to hear that. I'm going to listen when I get corrected Thank you so much for taking the time and trouble to let me know what it was like for you. Yeah. That's all. That's all it has to be. Yeah. I just go like, have your feelings. But also, if if you let your mad woman know that being told that something you did was racist is not, in fact, an attack on your identity, it's not going to trigger her. If she knows that this is not the pointing out of a distinction between who you think you are and who the world has accused you of being, this is not a matter of the chasm being violated that you in fact yes are a white lady who tries but you screw up sometimes if being someone who screws up sometimes is part of your identity then your madam is going to be like yep that person said i was racist and i screwed up i already knew that that was true yeah it's going to help protect you in that moment so this is all in the context of us being white ladies who do something and something is anything that isn't nothing and especially what we can do is help to be like hey White person, let me do a little bit of the emotional labor here so the person of color doesn't have to. We're trying to tell you what it's like for us when someone does that to us so that you know what to do when someone does it to you, which is not to freak out. Just be like, yeah. Is this one I should tell the story about my microaggressions workshop? Please do. Yeah. So I took a a workshop that was offered by my university 
for faculty and staff to learn about microaggressions and how not to commit microaggressions against your students or your coworkers. And um, it was a lot of stuff that I'd learned from other past workshops, but one of the things that I learned was that talking about people's accents can be interpreted as a microaggression, is a microaggression, because when people who have especially non-standard accents get that accent pointed out to them, it is used as a weapon. So mm -hmm. I'm gonna use a white example. My husband um, had a Southern accent most of his life and he got teased out of him. So he gave up his accent, changed his accent so that he could fit in with the people around him. And he hated when people used his accent against him. My voice teacher in college was from Texas. She had a Texas accent and people dismissed her as stupid because of the way she sounded. Now, if you're not white, if you are, for example, Hispanic and you speak Spanish as your first language and then you speak English with some kind of Spanish accent. You can be a white person and Hispanic at the same time. You can be a white so person and Hispanic? See, yeah. that's me screwing up. Oh my God, I screwed up. <laughs> Hispanic yeah. just refers to language, not to race. Yeah, I know and, that. And culture but... and stuff, but you can be a white person. White, non-Hispanic, white, white non Hispanic. Okay, that's what that means. <laughs> See, I've learned something right here, right now. Like I knew some facts, but I didn't put it together in a way that, yay, me for learning Really, things. this is just a podcast full of us like, here's what Look we suck up. at. Yeah. And so I reflected once I learned that um, people do use other people's accents against them to make them feel othered, to make them feel like they don't belong. Um, I did not know that that was a thing people do. But when I explained this to my husband, he told me the story about his Southern accent and how that had been done to him. And I was like, oh, because I have an intellectual curiosity about linguistics and accents. And I ask you people about their Dixon. accents. Diction. I teach diction. I, I wrote a chapter in a book about applying Diction techniques to teaching a choir to sing. I'm intellectually curious about accents. It never occurred to me that somebody would use an accent as a weapon against someone when it's just so fascinating. Let's all talk about our accents. So I reflected back to when I met a woman who told me where she was from, a Spanish-speaking country, and it was the same Spanish-speaking country that my therapist was from. And I said, oh, my therapist is from there. You don't sound like her. Usually I can identify that accent because I've heard my therapist talk in that accent. So usually I can recognize that same accent. And she said, oh, where do I sound like I'm from? And I was like, well, I don't know. You just, just doesn't sound from there. And I realized in this workshop, looking back at that interaction that I may have been doing something really terrible to that woman. She maybe had had people, you know, use her accent against her or make fun of her for it. And I, I was just like, ooh, neat. And I, oops, I'm an oblivious jerk. Yeah. Oops. So having it pointed out yeah. didn't make you go, no, it wasn't racist because your intentions truly were not racist. <laughs> no. But I didn't mean to belittle her at all. I genuinely, it never occurred to me that an accent could be something right. that somebody used against you someone else. You truly just didn't know. I just, and I went, oh. Sorry. Yeah. But and what I, you didn't do is the asshole thing of saying, because that was not my intention, therefore yes. there was no problem with it. Exactly. And actually when... That's what makes us white ladies who try. When I had this conversation with my husband and he was telling me about how he got made fun of for his accent and he gave it up. And um, he said that that was bad because the kids were making fun of him. And that if someone had asked him from a place of intellectual curiosity about it, then he would have been fine with it. Maybe. I was like, no, 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 you wouldn't. Not when you were in the context of, this is, you know, 30 years after he's lost that accent. 
now he's an he's adult, as opposed, an to adult as opposed to a kid. So I think so I think that was a little bit of a defense on his part, being like Yeah, trying to be nice. Be like, but no, I think your I think your intention matters. Well uh, uh, it might matter a little, but I don't think it's the final Of course it's not. Yeah. 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 I I don't think your intention is how somebody feels is meaningless, but it doesn't change what actually happened. happened. Like, so I fucked up because I was oblivious and did not know a thing that any person who spoke a foreign language. But when you learned, you didn't go, no, it's not. And you also didn't go into a state of like deep self-flagellation and hatred. No, I was like, and you didn't rely on a person of color to convince me console to, you to tell me the story of how they were made fun of their whole lives for their accent and they had to learn to speak english so they could interpret for their parents and i didn't need somebody to come tell me and do all that work to like no guide but the main no the, the main thing is you didn't oh, yeah i guess that is what it is you don't you didn't rely on a person of color to console oh, yeah. your hurt white feelings it's okay i understand you were just intellectually curious about language right yeah you they didn't know they didn't I, no. make somebody like absorb their pain no for you no I did go tell my husband about it, and like he tried to console me, so I didn't just deal with it That's by okay. myself. But dude, like, we have to help each other yeah. because we're not. But asking. my husband's another white dude, and he helped me yeah. through. Like he didn't. He took over the labor that I did not require a person of color to do. So first, we the first things we do do are we do the emotional work. Two, we do something when we notice things happening, um, and we know how to respond as white people who get corrected. Yeah. The first thing we I don't, don't ask do, people about their accents anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we don't. But if you meet me and you want to talk about your <laughs> accent, come talk to me about it. Because like, I'm not going to ask you, but I'm going to be curious just intellectually. So, okay. Accents. They're yeah. fun. They're fun. So the first thing and the first thing we don't do is use social justicing language like checking privilege. If it feels and this, Yeah. If it doesn't feel like our everyday actual reality, I talk about this noticing shit like I notice the dog hair in the corner of the house. Yeah. The second thing we don't do, um, which is why we are just white ladies who try instead of being self-identified allies, accomplices, or activists, right. we don't follow accounts yeah. that make us feel terrible. Yeah. No, we are not going to tell you which ones those are. <laughs> but there are some anti-racist educators whose social media presence yeah. is... I mean, like when I follow them... Every post just makes me feel helpless. Yeah. Like everything I do is wrong and there's no way to be a white lady without being a capital P problem. Yeah. I don't think that's what those accounts are for. No, it's not. I'm 100% sure it's I not. I don't think those accounts are for the white ladies who try. I don't think they're intended to make anybody feel helpless or like they're always wrong. And for all I know, it's real that there's no way to be a white lady and not also be a problem. But yeah, when I'm, I, I'm sure that that's true. When I'm confronted with that feeling, when I just check Instagram, yeah, with an account that's like really heavy on critique and light on solutions and yeah. hope, that prompts me to disengage altogether. Yes, um, to, which is what I do. Yeah, well, at least from that account, right? I'm not gonna disengage from trying to do my own personal work. But yeah, I don't want to be swamped with other people's rage. But it's hard enough without, and we're white ladies who try. We do what it takes to stay trying. And I, like, I think that there should be spaces where people of color can vent about how terrible they've been treated. A hundred percent. Absolutely. Yes. Take that. I will not insert myself. I think that that should exist. I'm not mad that you're mad. Like, I get it. Go do the thing. Absolutely. But I, I, it's really hard for me to voluntarily 
be in the same room as a lot of that or just looking at the same account as a lot of that. So I, I'm doing what I can and that's one of the things that I, I can't. Yeah. Can't. We're, we're not trying to be the best white people. We're just trying to be okay white people. We're just trying. Who just trying. Uh, we want to do more good than harm each day and we want to do more good today than we did yesterday. Yeah. And I am really comfortable with this compromise. Are you comfortable with this compromise? No, you're not. Look at that. No. <laughs> you're clearly not, but you do it anyway. I, I have to. Yeah. I mean, I really want to stay engaged with the with the communities that are talking about what the problems are so that I can stay connected, so that I'm informed, so I don't fuck up as much. I want to know what the fuck ups are before I make them. Like, please tell me what they are. But man, <sighs> there's only so much I can do. Yeah. I already have a lot of other shit to work on. <laughs> So the third, as you have, as anyone who's listened to multiple episodes knows, what's not, we don't not do this because we're awesome at it. We yeah. do it because we're working really hard. Yeah. But even though one of the things we do is we don't follow the accounts, we don't do is not follow the accounts that uh, make us feel terrible. We do, this is the number three thing that we do do. It's mm -hmm. a tiny, easy thing that anyone can do. Yeah. And everyone should do. Yeah. Diversify your social media feeds. Yes. Do a literal count yeah. of how many people you follow who are white or not white. Yeah. While and we're at it, who are thin and not thin, yes. who are cisgender and not cisgender, who have a physical disability or not a physical disability. Yeah. And if you want to find out who you should follow, go to your friends who are not like you in any way different and see who they follow. And then follow That is people. to say, go to their social media account yeah, yeah, no, and look at who they follow. Don't ask them do because that's them. doing it. Mean, you like, do the work yourself. Go to their social media feeds. It will have a thing at the bottom. It's like accounts this person follows and just follow those accounts. Yeah. Do the work yourself, please. It does a lot to have. I mean, part of me wants to be like, give you a percentage of what the research shows it has to be in order for the world to feel not homogenous. But I'm not going to do that because numbers like that don't feel good to people. Yeah. So I'm not going to give you a number. But it should be some a significant, noticeable. There should be yeah. a bunch of people who don't look like you. The Facebook algorithms feeds. think I'm black <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a fat woman because of my social media, because of who I follow. So all my ads are for or targeted to black women of size. Because that's, that's kind of great. So my algorithms are like, here's a hair product that has coconut oil in it. And I'm like, ooh, thanks. <laughs> but unfortunately, because it thinks that I'm a woman of size, it also targets me with a fucking weight loss ad. Oh, all the time. okay. I'm, like, I'm constantly like, hide this ad. Hide that's this ad. another episode. And I, and I click, they ask why. And I'm like, this is offensive. It is offensive. It is, it's completely offensive. It's offensive. It does harm. It does harm. So I. Okay. Yeah, I do that a lot. The number three thing that we don't do. Mostly, apart from this episode, which we've encouraged you several times not, not to listen to. <laughs> Please, because you're going to hear all the stories about the ways we fuck up and who wants to, you don't want it. We don't want you to hear that. And it's not our, it's like, it's not our place. No. It's, it's not about us. <laughs> yeah. And so we don't talk about it. We don't make space for racist shit to exist in our social media spaces, but we don't talk about the things we do to push that stuff out. Yeah. How we avoid creating space for racist shit. Because there's, that's, we're not here to earn cookies. We are here right. to earn cookies. We love cookies. Oh my God. Cookie, we're not supposed awesome. to. No, but I mean, that's what, that's why the cookies metaphor exists. It's because like, right. it, it's training that 
that it was effective. Right, like a puppy. Yeah. And so we we don't do the right thing and then look out to people of color so like we are those there? puppies see and they're the trainer there? and we just sat pretty sit and so where's the fucking cookie look at me sitting i'm so good if we get cookies we will but when a when oh god when so so we do a thing that we think is informed to help eliminate a barrier to people of color to access our work or to help white women to open their lives to be a little bit more sensitive we do that stuff all the time but we don't talk about the fact that we did it just like when I conduct rehearsals, I'm always aware of my singers, you know, bodies and moods and emotions. And I'm always checking to see, like, what's their well-being like and uh, and then make changes to adjust it. But I never talk about the fact that, well, you're clearly all very stressed out now, so I'm going to do a longer warm up. I don't talk about it. I just do it. Yeah. When I'm teaching a workshop, I notice the... First of all, the number of people of color present in a room, particularly black people, mm -hmm. who tend not to show up to a sexuality workshop in the first place. Mm. And then as the workshop is progressing and people participate, I monitor women and people of color participating in the conversation versus white people and men and especially white men. And I do my best to shut down the conversation coming from the white men, which does tend to dominate, and to pause and create space for the women of color to feel welcome participating actively. But not with saying, I'm doing this thing now in order to make space. No, I never talk, talk about, about it. it. You just, just do it. it. I don't ever say, like, no one who's been to my workshop is going to remember that time when I talked about the ways I was trying to create space for women of color in the room. Yeah. We're... But if somebody does notice and, like, thanks me for it, I do feel... Yeah, you noticed. I do feel patted on the head. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's... You're a human being. Yes. We... we I enjoy being praised when I do a good thing. Look, we we don't like getting our feet shocked, and we want to go to the feeder and get the sugar cube or whatever the little research behavior yes. things are. Research modification is a thing because it works. So, yeah. like, you praise somebody for doing something good, and they like it. Yeah. So and those that's are okay. It's okay to like praise. Three things we do, and you just three don't things demand we... it of anyone, and you don't make it a condition that you're not going to do this no. unless you get praised. You're going to do it because it's the right thing to do. And if you also get a cookie, yay! Yeah, but it's not mandatory. Nobody right. owes anybody no. cookies for being aware yeah. of the fact that racism is real. And when it happens in real life, I do actually feel awkward. Like I, in the start of my sexuality talks, yeah. I often pause and say, "Black lives matter. Black sexuality matters." I talk about the ways that there are health disparities between. Black women in America and white women in America and the responsibilities that sex educators, therapists and researchers have yeah. to begin closing that disparity. Yeah. And sometimes someone will come up and thank me afterward. Right. And, like, and it's hard to know, like, I, I, I'm just doing not nothing. Yeah. Like, I'm I'm trying yeah. to, I'm, I'm a white lady who tries. Yeah. I'm taking whatever opportunity I have to do something that isn't nothing. Like, they're thanking you for wearing pants. Right. Like, I'm just trying to help I'm the world just, out. Just, <laughs> it just, just feels like the thing, thing you should one. do. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I would like to conclude by talking about, so I, this is Emily, I was an enthusiastic supporter of Hillary Clinton, would however you feel about her. And I stayed skeptical the whole time about Hillary winning. My therapist had to, like, try to reassure me and not to worry, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I wasn't worried about the race part, I was worried because she was a woman. Yeah. It took 
seeing the honest breakdown of who voted for Trump, and it's 47% of white women, which is not 53% reported in the exit polls, but it is in the initial poll, but it is still updated. It's 47%, which is way too many. It's still too many. It's not a literal majority, but oh my God, it's It's way too many. Way, it's close enough. Yeah. And that number, the shocking understanding that almost half of people like me voted for that that. for a confessed sexual predator it showed me admitted sexual predator that given the choice between supporting their gender and supporting their race many white women chose to support their privileged whiteness over their marginalized womanhood and there are zero women of color who were surprised by that right it was just you and me and our whiteness being like what yeah, I, I I mean, I was frankly like, it's the woman part is plenty. Yeah. And it was adding the race part that made it like, right. oh, yeah. so so that's, that is the kind of white I am. Yeah. I'm the kind who chooses to support my gender over my race. Although I do think that there's a difference in the value of both of those candidates. Right. I mean, <laughs> yes. And I'm also the kind of white woman who's ready to throw my race under the bus yes. Yes. if it makes creating space for somebody else's race. 100%. So black people often talk about being their ancestors' wildest dreams. Yeah. And I am my ancestors' worst fucking nightmare. And I hold that as a point of pride. Yep. What kind of white are you? So that's our very awkward and uncomfortable episode about racism. The many ways we suck at this. Including the fact that we made an episode about racism. White ladies. (laughs) We're we're just trying. Did we fuck up making this episode? Was that a bad It's like the Maria Bamford very special race episode. (laughs) And at the end, she's like, and that's enough for me. Yeah. That's that's what this episode is. So we're sorry. So hopefully you have not listened this far. Yeah. And if you have, let us know what kind of white are you. And if you're a person of color, tell us about all the ways we fucked up. (laughs) Because we did. (laughs) And you can trust us not to lash out and not to rely on you to, like, band-aid our hurt white feelings. Yeah. That's the kind of white we are. We're going to deal with our own feelings. We're going to fuck up. We're going to feel bad about it, but we're going to feel, we're going to take care of our own. That's feelings. right. We're going to take responsibility for ourselves and yes. worked great. I'm the kind of white who takes responsibility for my fuck ups and my feelings about my fuck ups. And I try not to fuck up. I really do. But man, it's just everywhere. <laughs> Whiteness? White supremacy. It's everywhere. Literally everywhere. Jesus. And I can't escape it. Yeah. But I'm trying. Thanks for listening. Just a podcast full of us like here's what we suck at. <laughs>